We got to aim at two goals. We got to block the virus, but we got to do something about those secondary effects. And these are the things that are emerging right now that are both fascinating and informative. So we have a lot to learn, but it's opening up the door, I believe, to some interventions that might be helpful. We know the answer to this pandemic is going to be science and innovation. And what we can bring to the table with RNA interference is really powerful uh, and something that we're excited to bring forward. And we're really driven uh, to find a solution and to find a cure. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Some called them nerds in high school. They were the ones with the most textbooks on their laps or in their book bags on the school bus. But now more than ever, it's these geeks and lab rats that are humanity's greatest hope. Too often in Washington and across the country, men and women who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of scientific knowledge have been minimized and marginalized by elected officials on both sides of the aisle who put their ideologies over practical problem solving. Leaders who didn't want to address what was hard to understand or that conflicted with what they had always believed to be true, or the consequences of which seemed far away in time and space. Climate scientists who have been watching with horror as a predictable planetary catastrophe unfolds were discredited because preventing a bleak environmental future would cost more than they were willing to spend. So instead, we wait for the inevitable to unfold as the long-term habitability of our planet hangs in the balance. Evolutionary virologists warning with growing urgency and desperation that a global pandemic approached have been ignored as doomsayers and fringe voices outside of the mainstream. So serious efforts weren't undertaken to mitigate habitat loss deforestation or agricultural practices that helped contribute to deadly animal viruses jumping from animals to people. And bioscientists working on unlocking the secrets of the human body to give us a fighting chance to win the war against this invisible enemy have too often been dismissed. Biotech companies who haven't earned a dime in profit are told they're part of an industry of uncaring profiteers because their critics refuse to adequately consider extraordinary time, expense, and complexity of delivering safe medicines to the market. Now more people are waking up to the value of transformative science, to the importance of accumulated wisdom to keep our loved ones safe. At least we hope they are. Today, my guest is a pioneer in the new frontier of medicine known as RNA interference. He's a great scientist, and he's not really a nerd. He's a cool guy. Come with me on a journey of discovery for the next half hour as we learn how this remarkable advance in biotechnology could be one of the most powerful tools in our arsenal to beat back the coronavirus and future pandemics that we know will follow it.
Well, today's guest is a brilliant scientist, a visionary, and the CEO of Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, John Maraginore. He has led the Boston-based biotech since 2002. He grew it from a small startup to a publicly traded force to be reckoned with, pioneering an entirely new class of medicines known as RNAi therapeutics. And now John has directed his team to take on COVID-19 and other viruses that could launch the next global pandemic. John, welcome to High Bio. Thanks, Jim. Good to talk to you. So before we, we get into what your company's doing and the science and the politics and all of that, um, help our listeners understand a little bit about who the heck you are and where you come from. A couple of years ago, a certain someone who will remain nameless talked about our about certain shithole countries. And <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, you tweeted that you were proud to be a shitholer. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm the son of two Greek immigrants. And, and when my parents immigrated to the U.S., they were certainly coming from a country at the time that was, uh, was largely considered to be a shithole in terms of its economic uh, well-being. And so when, our, uh, when that person who shall not be mentioned commented on, on uh, shithole countries, I, I did feel proud uh, to be a shitholer. At the end of the day, uh, because nothing, nothing more proud in my growing up with my mom and dad than than the, the heritage I came from and what they came from and what they made of themselves in this great country. So it was wonderful to, um, you know, be part of of the upbringing of immigrant an uh, immigrant mother and father. I was born and raised in Chicago and went to ultimately the University of Chicago and got my undergrad, but stayed on and did my PhD in biochemistry. And, um, you know, then from there, uh, in the early 80s, left, left my graduate work and went into industry and first went to the Upjohn Company in Kalamazoo and then a company called Zymogenetics out in Seattle, then Biogen for 10 years, Millennium. And then in 2002, I found myself at Elnylum. When you found yourself at Elnylum, I always think of you as, as the founder of Elnylum. Yeah, I wasn't the founder. I was the founding CEO. I was the first... CEO to run the company. Um, the the venture capitalists had started it in June of 2002, and I joined six months later as they were doing a search for a for a CEO. And I was the first CEO and built the company. When I joined, there were only six employees at the company, so it feels a lot like having founded it at the end of the day. But formally speaking, the company was there before I actually joined. Wow. Uh-huh. So, how has COVID nineteen affected you and your, your colleagues at work? I mean, it's obviously been a devastating um, uh, pandemic, and the impact of it is is enormous. But it also was the foundation for um, for basically uh, motivating our scientists to find ways of applying groundbreaking type technology. But um, it motivated our scientists and clinicians to basically join forces and 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 work hard and 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 start developing approaches using RNA interference for treating. COVID-19 infection. And um, obviously, um, you know, we know that, that, that the answer to this pandemic is going to be science and innovation. And what we can bring to the table with RNA interference and the technology that Alnylam has pioneered from the beginning is really powerful uh, and something that we're ex- excited to bring forward. And we're really driven uh, to find a solution and to find a cure. So I think most people, <clears throat> if they don't know exactly what DNA is, they're certainly familiar with the term, but probably fewer them, a few of them understand what RNA is, yeah. let alone RNA interference. I remember when I first came to bio, 
Um, you came to my office and gave me a, a brief education in, in it. And so why don't you um, uh, see if you can walk us through in layman's term exactly what RNA is and what RNAi is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you may you may remember, Jim, in, in, in high school, you learned about the central dogma of biology, uh, which is that DNA makes RNA, which makes protein. So <clears throat> RNA is really the, the middle step in, in converting the genetic information from DNA into proteins. And, and proteins are the materials that make up our cells. They make up basically the, the bulk of our body. But to make protein, the DNA first gets converted into RNA. And so it is that central messenger in the body, if you will, and it's a critical part of, of basically how a cell functions. Now, with RNA interference, we basically are able to, in a selective and, and highly potent manner, target the RNA intermediary, the messenger, and degrade it. So what we can do is we can intervene with a basic biological process where DNA makes RNA makes protein by targeting the RNA um, targeting it for destruction and blocking the production of a protein. And the reason this is, of course, an important approach for new medicines is, um, if I can use an analogy, if you've got a flood on your kitchen floor, all of today's medicines work by mopping up the floor. They, they, they basically are working on the protein level. What we can do with RNA interference is we can turn off the faucet causing the flood. So we work upstream of today's medicines. And, and that represents a powerful approach to treat human disease. So it's sort of like you're the opposite of the sorcerer's apprentice. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Mickey was the conventional medicines these days, mopping up the floors, and we just had that simple approach to turn off that faucet. So you feel free to use that without uh, attribution to me whenever you I, want. Yeah. I will. I actually will. Re- yeah. I'll give you attribution. Well, I may, I may have to, you know, Copyright that or something. But in any case, uh, so now let's connect RNA interference with the coronavirus. You bet. Well, in fact, the connection is remarkably clear because the coronavirus, and and specifically SARS-CoV-2, is an RNA virus. It is a virus made up. Its genetic information is RNA. It doesn't even have DNA. So with RNA interference, we are targeting the RNA of the virus itself. We're targeting the genome of the virus itself. RNA interference becomes a powerful approach to develop antivirals um, because we don't have to even bother with the DNA step, if you will. We can go right to the RNA, target the RNA for destruction, and prevent the virus from replicating. So, so there's Mr. Big Bad Coronavirus all by himself sitting in a human cell, right? Yeah. And what he wants to do is make a copy of himself. That's right. And he doesn't have, he doesn't bring with him the building blocks to do that. He has to mine that from within my cell, right? That's, that's correct. All right. And then along comes your proposed medicine. And does exactly what to Mr. Virus as he's destroys, in the midst of that process. It destroys its genome. It destroys its ah. ability to make anything. So it is a, and again, it's doing this like in the Sorcerer's Apprentice 
upstream of Mickey Mouse and the many brooms that are that are are, are there uh, in that uh, in that Fantasia uh, clip. So it is acting upstream of where other types of medical approaches might work. I mean, take take uh, other antiviral drugs like remdesivir, for example, which is a very promising small molecule drug from Gilead. Remdesivir acts on a uh, protein that the virus makes, right? So we're going to act upstream of where remdesivir might act by targeting the, the RNA of the virus, the, its genome, directly. So it's a very different approach than what a small molecule drug or an antibody therapy might be able to do. Well, first off, for, for those who are listening and have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about the Sorcerer's Apprentice and Fantasia and Mickey Mouse, all of you under 50 or whatever you are, um, Google it. It's, it's good stuff. It is. It's a good image. It's a good image. <laughs> so back, so back to, to your, your, your drug your, that you're developing. So this is a therapeutic. Um, so this would be a drug that one would take after the patient is diagnosed with the, the, the virus? Well, it's, it, it's going to be, we think the best way to give it is two different ways. One is to treat an infected person, provided it can be given early. And this is one of the challenges with all antivirals that target a respiratory viral uh, infection, an acute infection like, like, uh, like COVID-19. You have to get in as early as possible. But the other way that, that is actually quite interesting is to give it prophylactically to, um, especially to at-risk people, healthcare workers, um, the elderly, um, younger people, and use it as a prophylactic approach to prevent infection from happening in the first place. It's almost like a therapeutic vaccine, if you will. And one of the reasons, Jim, we can do that with, with, with our drug is that it's incredibly long-lasting. What we know about RNA interference is it's very, very durable. So even a single dose can last for months after administration. So imagine being able to give a drug like our drug by inhalation, for example, you know, just like an inhaler is used for patients with asthma, people with asthma. Um, and you might take a dose you know, once a month or so and effectively prevent the virus from being able to infect uh, the lungs in, in, in the airway. So it's, an, it's a, effectively an antiviral prophylactic agent. And that is probably the better way to use a drug like this, because obviously for any treatment to work, it would have to work, have to be given very, very early in the course of an infection. Hmm. So when you think about how and when the world is going to be able to return back to normal life and to work and school and all of that and to play. And we, we're all waiting and waiting and waiting for the vaccine, which, if it broke all land speed records, would be here by early next year, probably more likely we're a year to a year and a half away. And there are those who say, um, by the way, there's no such guarantee that we'll ever have a vaccine yeah. because there's never been a vaccine made for coronavirus. That's right. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And, and we have viruses like HIV, like herpes, that have been around forever, well, for decades and decades, uh, for which we still don't have vaccines. That is correct. So whether we get a vaccine uh, sooner or later, the reality is that we're going, in order to go back to work, e- even when the, when, the, when the curve flattens out and we 
we're allowed to sort of climb out of our houses and sneak back to the offices and the workplaces. The reality is that 95% of us or so will not have at least been diagnosed uh, with the virus. And even if 25% of us have it and maybe don't have, haven't had symptoms, it's still a lot of people who will not have been infected yeah. and who will, when returning to normal life, become infected. And for that process to work, we're going to need something that will be able to not only quickly diagnose us through testing, but then, as you say, quickly um, have access, we'll need to have access to a therapeutic that will minimize the impact of the disease so the risk doesn't, isn't quite so terrible as it is now. That's right. Yeah, and I think there's no doubt about that, Jim. I, look, I mean, I'm, I think there's uncertainty around a vaccine. I, I happen to be somebody who believes that with, with the amazing ingenuity we have coming out of, of many, many companies that we're going to be successful in a vaccine. But to your point, it's not a given. It's not a certainty. And even with vaccines coming, you, you're going to want to have therapeutics. You're going to want to have an approach to treat the virus in people that, that are infected. So your partner in, in this enterprise is Vera Pharmaceuticals. That's and right. we had uh, our mutual friend, Vera CEO, George Skangos, on the podcast recently. There's this tragic misconception that our industry puts profits before patients. But Alnylam and Veer got started together on what was basically a virtual handshake. As I understand it, you uh, didn't bring in uh, armies of lawyers and uh, make sure that you were each going to get the maximum amount of money you could squeeze from this, uh, from each other or from this whole process. So tell right. us about, about how that happened. We, of course, had a relationship with Veer focusing on hepatitis B viral infection, and we have a program that's in phase two clinical development that's shown some very promising results. And so when the COVID-19 pandemic was beginning, and this is really early, um, as, as even the early reports were coming out of China that uh, this infection was happening, uh, we began to work on uh, generating small interfering RNA molecules. But we realized that getting this to clinic as quickly as possible was going to depend on having a partner that had the existing capabilities to work with the virus. And we didn't have those capabilities at, at El Nylum. And to build them up at El Nylum would have taken time and slowed things down in our overall efforts to bring this to patients as quickly as possible. So I called up George. I told him about our effort. Um, you know, we talked about it. He was excited about that application and that opportunity. And literally within, you know, a week or so, we were able to put an agreement together that um, did not take, you know, the usual months of time and the usual numbers of lawyers. And it was because of the urgency around this current uh, crisis that we're in. And we have, you know, frankly, no real interest in making money from this approach. We want to solve the pandemic. We want to advance a medicine that can, um, at the end of the day, make an impact on the treatment of this terrible disease that has crippled our society. Um, that's our focus. And, and frankly, that kind of arrangement has not been completely atypical right now. I've talked to so many leaders of these companies who say, look, we might make money, we might lose money, we might break even. That's quite secondary to us. There are literally billions of lives on the line here. Let's let's get this job done and do it as, as quickly and as, as intelligently as we can. No doubt, Jim. I mean, look, the, you know, I have never seen 
the industry work together in this fashion. It, it, we have all come together. Look, this is an industry that, um, you know, I guess 30 years ago now, um, addressed HIV and um, within a reasonable short period of time was able to find a treatments for HIV and convert HIV from death sentence to a disease that people can live with for the rest of their lives. Um, that was an amazing period. This is 10 times what I saw back then. I was, I was at Biogen as a young scientist during the HIV crisis, and we were working on medicines for HIV, and we used to go to the AIDS conferences every year, and there was a lot of, there's a lot of cooperation between companies at that time and between health officials, public health officials. But this is, a, this is an order of magnitude um, beyond what I saw you know, in the 80s around HIV. We're, we've got um, an enormous um, uh, amount of science and innovation coming from this industry, working together, um, sharing information, sharing approaches, um, sharing data. It is just, it's a totally different world. And, and, and of course, any, the usual boundaries around, um, you know, protection of information and propriety so that, you know, ultimately one person can win from an economic perspective, that's all gone away. This is all about advancing the science, advancing these medicines for patients and for this pandemic, and frankly, doing everything we can just to, to address the societal need as quickly as possible. And of course, from the, the from your perspective and my perspective, the great, great on, irony as well, all of this work is going on. Scientists, and it's hard to imagine how many scientists, how many thousands of scientists literally right now in biotech companies in the U.S. and around the world are in their labs, staying up late uh, and and just racking their brains and and collaborating with one another to try to find some therapies and some vaccines against this disease. At the same time, there was a poll last fall that found that the drug industry was the least popular in America. Yeah ranking behind big oil, big tobacco, and the gun industry. And uh, yeah, you and I have been talking about this for a very long uh, time. It's, but it's, for it's, our listeners, what, what does the public have wrong about us? Well, you know, I mean, what they have wrong is that, you know, we're scientists and clinicians. We're, you know, we, we are the answer uh, for the world um, for a solution to bring this pandemic to an end. There, you know, this is the industry that will find the vaccine, that will find the treatment. It does not come from academic research. Academic research is amazingly important in what we do, of course, but the people that ultimately take that academic research and make medicines and make vaccines is what this industry does. And so I think and I hope the public is recognizing the critical importance that our industry brings to the table, especially at a time like this. But it's also true when we're fighting cancer, when we're fighting other rare diseases. I mean, it's equally important. Perhaps now uh, the public can see how critically important it is that, and, and how happy they should be and proud they should be to have an industry like our biopharmaceutical industry who's around to potentially find a solution for this pandemic. And what's going to be interesting is there are, I think, something like 250 companies working on coronavirus now and COVID-19. That's right. Uh, so, something like 300 different projects developing, trying to develop therapeutics like you are and, and vaccines. And 
uh, as we all watch the news, and we're all glued to our televisions now, as we watch the news and we they build up hope about this drug and then it won't work. Yeah. And, yeah. and then we'll get very enthusiastic and excited about something else that's gone into clinical trials and it won't work. And there'll be despair among the public. Um, this is predictable. Uh, and until some of them, hopefully yours, starts to work. Yeah. Probably 90% of those projects will fail. That's right. And from the point of view of the patients and the doctors and, and the public, it's, oh, it um, looks like that drug's not going to come to our rescue. But from the point of view of the companies, they probably just sunk a whole lot of money, as did their investors in these very expensive projects, and they came up with, with nothing. Yeah. And that's not unusual. In fact, that's the way it is in biotechnology across the board, right? This is a, an unknown, uh, a completely novel virus, and, 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 the, and the disease itself is incredibly complex. Uh, we're only just beginning to learn about this virus. And so doing clinical studies, l- knowing how to do clinical studies to ultimately find a cure for this virus is understandably risky. Um, some of the approaches that are being tested will not make it, and they won't make it because they, they, they were good ideas, but, but it didn't you know, meet the needs of what's needed to fight the virus. Other cases, it'll be just because the experiment was too difficult to do, uh, for for lots of different reasons, we operate in a in a very risky business in terms of bringing these medicines to patients, and of course, invest a lot to do that. You know, we've we've elevated our COVID nineteen effort within the company as as our top priority. This is the number one priority for our research effort, our research and development team. And you know, as we've shut down or needed to shut down some of our activities because of because of you know employee safety and move people to, to, to stay at home, this is a program that is not being shut down, where you have employees that come to work every day, working 24-7, you know, to bring these medicines as quickly as possible. And we're close, Jim. I mean, we're, we're going to have what's called a development candidate in the next, you know, couple weeks. And when we have that development candidate, we're going to start our process to bring it to the clinic and by all accounts, we plan on having this into the clinic by the end of the year. And that's the fastest we've ever gone. We've never been able to go this fast. From light bulb over our head in January when the Wuhan uh, outbreak was just happening, a novel medicine that's in man by the end of the year. So we are, we are going at a completely different speed than we've ever gone before. Well, that's, that's fantastic, and it's amazing. And you and I have friends who have started companies and been there for many, many years and, and spent tons and tons and tons of money, and then it didn't work, and that was the end of that company, and, and they sent their employees home, and that was it. And investors know that, and they invest in, if an investor, venture capitalist invests in t- 10 companies, probably going to lose their money in nine. We were founded in 2002. Well, we, we finally got our first product to market in 2018, and we now actually have our second product on the market, which is terrific. We've Up until this date, we've invested about $3.5 billion as a company over the last 18 years. We're coming up to our 18th birthday. We are not profitable. We are not a profitable company. And, and let me interrupt you. I think it's important. When you say we invested $3 billion, you didn't walk into this with $3 billion oh, no. in your wallet. You had to get investors Correct. to 
to invest and take a chance that your company would succeed for a and for a very long time. Yeah, we've actually at this point now we've raised over seven billion dollars as a company mm. from investors, including a very recent uh, financing that we did. So you know we've raised enormous amounts of money and have imprudently invested. Um, you know, over three and a half billion dollars, and we're not profitable yet. So we ha- and we have a while to go before we get profitable. So this is a um, a business that is incredibly capital intensive. It takes a lot, a lot of time to advance this type of innovation. Um, you know, to get to this stage. But you know, getting back to your question about big pharma, bigger pharma companies, and biotech companies. Look, I think the fundamental difference is, you know, the companies that are bringing forward. The cutting edge innovations, whether it's RNA interference, gene therapy, cell therapy, um, novel protein-based therapies like antibodies, those are the companies that are harnessing the the real frontiers of medicine. These are the companies that are at the pinnacle of the type of innovation that that ultimately will generate curative therapies in many cases, if not you know restorative therapies, uh, for a a broad swath of human disease. That's different than the larger pharma companies that have been more traditional in their over in their overall approaches. They're older, longer-standing companies, much bigger than our than our companies. Um, they're much more profitable than our biotech companies. Um, but you know, they are, of course, an important part of our ecosystem as well. We often partner with them to bring our our innovation to the market. And a lot of smaller bi- biotech companies eventually get gobbled up. Uh, bought out by large pharma companies. So Nylum has not gone that route. You've gone from a small company to a, a pretty good-sized company. And, and so what, what's different about your vision that you haven't sought to be um, bought out, but you've actually sort of hung in there and trying to grow the company? God, we'd hate to be bought out, Jim. I mean, it would be the end of our... <laughs> it would be the end of, of the great things that we can do. When companies get bought out by a larger company, a lot of the spark, a lot of the... Um, ingenuity, a lot of the nimbleness of a, of a small company, and frankly, a lot of the real zeal and drive and passion just goes away because you're, you're now part of a much, much larger thing. So for us, it's about, about our commitment to patience by staying independent. Um, you know, we want to be able to control our destiny for the benefit of the patients that we serve. And obviously, if we do a good job for patients, you know, we'll reward our shareholders as well. And of course, when people think of investors, they also think of cigar chopping guys on Wall Street. But your investors, I'm sure, include teacher pensions and oh, yeah. all kinds of 401ks and all of the rest. A lot of the general public has, you know, have accounts with Fidelity or T. Rowe Price or other firms that, um, that basically invest in El Nilo. So over the last two years, Al Nylum got the first ever and the second ever FDA approvals for therapies using your RNAi approach. So tell us about the diseases that you now treat and what your medicines are doing for their those patients and, and their families. Well, Jim, the first um, RNAi therapeutic that we brought to market is called Onpatro, um, and it's a um, revolutionary medicine for a disease called hereditary. ATTR amyloidosis. It's a rare disease that afflicts about 50,000 people around the world. And what we were able to show in clinical studies is that on Patro, given, which is given every three weeks to patients, basically um, stops and in some cases reverses the progression of their disease. So we've 
been able to see patients that have been um, that have neuropathy that leads to them requiring a wheelchair or cane for ambulation. We've seen patients that have halted their typical progression, or in some cases, we've seen patients that have actually you know stopped using a cane and are fully ambulatory, or have stopped using a wheelchair and are able to get around with a cane. I mean, these have been dramatic changes. So it's a very promising therapy that has was actually the first ever drug approved in the U.S. for this disease um, and is obviously become a transformative medicine for patients afflicted with this condition. Now, is that the, is that the, is that the disease that um, my uh, Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey's father it, it, That is right. Had? That is right. Okay. Senator, Senator Governor Casey, Senator Casey as well, right? I think uh, he was a Senator Jim as well as a governor if I recall correctly, but um, he did have that disease and that did kill him, unfortunately. So it is a, it is a fatal, generally fatal disease um, and it, uh, it's inherited. And so people that get it may find out they got it in the middle of their life when things are great and they've got young kids. You know, a lot of people that get diagnosed in their 50s, um, of course, are just um, distraught by the fact that half of their kids uh, may get it. You know, many of the patients that we um, talk to and uh, work with all the time uh, describe how much their despair around their disease, and as much as they'd like to live for as long as they can, is also around the fact that they know that some of their kids may have it as well. And so that is a terrible, uh, terrible piece of news to get uh, right when you're in the middle of life, um, enjoying perhaps the pinnacle of, of, of your lifetime. And so, so those folks not only get to benefit from what your medicine does for them, but it also gives them hope that uh, it will help their offspring, and um, and maybe as you it, as the drug improves, you know, help them in a in greater to greater and greater extents. Yeah, you know, it's it's particularly true um, when you're doing a clinical study. So when we were doing our clinical trials with Onpatro. And we were randomizing patients into a placebo arm, a, a, a dummy arm, versus the drug arm. Um, many of the patients that entered the clinical study would say, hey, look, I don't know if I'm getting placebo. Or I don't know if I'm getting active drug. But I'm coming into this clinical study because I want to help my kid. We've now begun to study much more common diseases. In, ca- in fact, we have a, a drug that's partnered with a large company, Novartis, that is being reviewed by the FDA and the and other regulatory authorities around the world for the treatment of very of a very common condition called hypercholesterolemia. That means elevated LDL levels. People know about LDL being bad cholesterol. Well, we have a treatment uh, option for for patients with too much bad cholesterol that's given once every six months. So it's almost like a vaccine for hypercholesterolemia. Uh, just like you'd get a vaccine for flu once a, once a, once a year, uh, patients with uh, elevated LDL levels can get this drug in Clisaran, if it's approved, uh, every, every six months for the treatment of their hypercholesterolemia. Now, does, would that mean that people like myself, like I, who, who uh, take a statin every morning, would have that as an option, or is it only for some subset of us? It's going to be used initially or approved initially in people that have had prior coronary artery disease, which hopefully, Jim, you haven't had. So, no, um, no. so you know, you you won't you won't be um, uh, uh, able to get it unless you your doctor gives it to you. Um, but you, you pay people that have had a prior heart attack, people that have had other you know heart disease problems, 
and they're unable to get their LDL to their target level with statins, those are candidates, those are people that would be very eligible for this drug. And there are about 5 million people in the U.S. alone that are in that bucket. Not rare at all. Not at all. So, and, and isn't one of your drugs uh, that you have in the pipeline designed to treat the aff- affliction that caused the madness of King George? Well, that's the porphyria drug. And, and oh, yeah, okay. So, so King George III, um, who many of you might have remembered the movie back, I think it was in the you know uh, 90s or 80s, 90s, uh, called The Madness of King George. Um, George III went mad, and he had porphyria. And that's because this that disease that creates those um, episodic um, abdominal attacks in some patients causes uh, these hallucinations. And, and that's what happened to King George III, who uh, ultimately was found to have this disease. Mm. Now, you're expecting that you're going to be getting FDA approval of your RNAi therapeutics like every 12 to 18 months? That's the plan, Jim. That- that's the plan. So we now have two drugs approved. We have two other drugs that are being reviewed by the FDA, but also a drug for a rare kidney disease. Then we have two other drugs that are in phase three development. So when you when you look out for alnylam over the next 12 to 24 months, we should have six drugs approved, um, you know, barring, barring any upsets, which can always happen in drug development. But assuming things go well, we should have a total of six drugs approved over the next 12 to 24 months. Well, that's amazing for you and your and your scientists to have all of that success. One last question. Yes, Jim. Where did you get the name Al Nylon? <laughs> it's the name of the center star of Orion's Belt. So, if you look up in the sky, especially during the during the winter months, and you see the constellation Orion, the middle star of the belt is named Al Nylon. You know, we decided to shoot for the stars, Jim. You you hit a few. We did. We did. So far, so good. <laughs> All right. Well, we uh, wish you all the best, continued success, and uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Great to join you in this conversation. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you've learned something useful, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes in lab coats, please visit IamBio.org. In our next episode, we're going to learn about an unlikely ally in scientists' effort to create human antibodies to protect us from COVID, the cow. That's right, a South Dakota biotech is using genetic engineering techniques to create super potent human antibodies produced by bovines with the help of their turbocharged immune systems. Only these cows don't produce monoclonal antibodies they produce polyclonal human antibodies, which could potentially provide much broader immunization against a rapidly mutating coronavirus. Could our animal friends help us beat back a deadly animal virus that's found its way into humans? Find out on the next episode of I Am Bio.